Welcome to episode 306 of the Thunder Underground podcast. Trent and Jason here as always, and this week we've got Matthew Nelson, one half of the Nelson Twins here on this podcast. Very cool. Both of us have never been shy about the fact that we love this band. Oh man, I don't care who knows what. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'll I, tell all my Slayer friends, I fucking love Nelson. Yeah, I, I still care. love him now more than ever. Yeah. Do you like that? Do you like that? <laughs> I wish that's people could have seen my face. I'm like, that was clever as fuck. That's what I do, son. <laughs> but was... it's, it's, it's the truth. Uh, great songwriters. That's a great first record. These guys know what they're doing. It's a great story. It really is. Yeah. And full transparency, after I heard... Both of them were on Jericho's podcast, and I know you listen to that as well. Yeah, yeah. Talking about the 30th anniversary of After the Rain. And I'm like, we need to reach out and see if one of them's available to talk to. And look what happened. And it worked out. So, very glad to be able to talk to Matthew Nelson about a ton of stuff here coming up. But first, we need to let you know who we're sponsored by. DEB Concerts, promoter based in Tulsa that has brought a lot of killer acts to the downtown Tulsa area at the BOK Center and the IDL Ballroom. They also booked the Roadhouse stage at Rocklahoma. The show on December 12th with Lita Ford was recently canceled, but if you like Lita Ford, no worries because April 10th, downtown Tulsa, outdoors in front of the IDL Ballroom, Queensryche will be performing with Lita Ford, Nita Strauss, and the Bullet Boys. Very cool lineup there. You can get all your ticket info, debconcerts.com. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as well. We, of course, will keep you up to date on any other new additions to their calendar or any other reschedules as well. So keep it here and follow DEB Concerts. Hell Hot Hot Sauce is a hot sauce company located out of the San Francisco Bay Area. They make small batch artisan hot sauces. You can check out their entire product line at their website, which is hellahothotsauce.com. You can also follow them on their socials. Both Instagram and Facebook are at hellahothotsauce. They do a lot of collaborations. They've got a couple with some metal artists, like Ghoul has a sauce called Brain Jerk, and Florida Frank from Hatebreed has a sauce called Florida Frank's Florida Heat. We've got a lot of that, and it's excellent stuff, but it'll it'll burn your insides pretty good. So, if you're interested in hot sauce, get on hellhothotsauce.com and check out what they've got. If you're on the West Coast, you can find them in a lot of stores out there as well. We get on there and tell them we sent you. Sunset Tattoo. It's a tattoo shop in Midtown Tulsa. Their tattoos are done good and proper. They're state licensed. They are mother approved. Jake and his crew have over 25 years of experience. They do excellent work. You can see photo proof of all that work on their Facebook, which is Sunset Tattoo Tulsa. Their Instagram is also at Sunset Tattoo Tulsa. You give them a call or shoot them a message. You can set up a time to get over there, talk about what work you want to have done. If you contact them, check them out, tell them Thunder Underground sent you. And finally, Med Farm is a dispensary in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, 24683 East Highway 51, right off the highway. Can't miss them. Huge selection, and you can check it all out at leafly.com. They've got a drive through If you call ahead or text ahead, they'll have your order ready while we show up. So that's very convenient. They also give 30% of their proceeds to build no-kill animal shelters, which is a pretty badass cause that we're very happy to talk about here. If you also mention Thunder Underground, they give you 10% off your first order. They're always running other specials as well. So if you follow them on their socials, MedFarm is P-H-A-R-M on Facebook and MedFarm OK on Instagram. You won't miss any of that stuff. And a huge thank you to MedFarm. All right. So is there anything... Anything on the docket to talk about before we jump into this, or we just should we just head right into this Nelson stuff? I, I think we're in Nelson world, man. Yeah, because I mean, this is a pretty good length interview. I think right. it, I think it's probably around forty-five minutes, maybe. Talk about, of course, the thirtieth anniversary of After the Rain and some new stuff they've got coming up. And Matthew Nelson even has a 
new band he's working on, a new rock band that doesn't involve his brother. Wow. So that'll be interesting to hear. Right. Hear about that coming up. And I mean, another thing I want to point out is, I mean, so much talk when you, Nelson, it's one of those bands that had such a massive freaking album that that's what people think of and that's what they go to. And rightfully so. I mean, it's great. But just recently, when I say recently, comparatively, five years ago, they released that album, Peace Out. And that album was just great. Right. And I remember, I think we might even had that on our best of that year, if I remember right. I think so. Because, I mean, that was, I should have looked into that. But it's a, I mean, it's just a really good melodic rock album. They had an album come out in the late 90s called Imaginator that he actually talks about here in an interview that was supposed to be their second album, but Geffen wouldn't release it because mm-hmm. it was too dark for what Nelson was supposed to be. And I'm like thinking, wouldn't that be perfect though? Because they're in the middle, middle of the nineties. Yeah. Don't you want something to be a little bit darker to appeal to the mainstream? I don't know. Corporations (laughs) are buttholes. Right. Um, and you know, I was going to say, if you ever, you ever want to get weird, come over, I have the tape, the cassette after the rain. That's right. Okay. Do you have it on vinyl? No, I need it on vinyl. And this tape I found at the flea market for like two bucks. Okay. You know, and sometimes you never know what you're going to get, but for two bucks, fuck it, right? Oh, yeah. Well, this tape, you know, it's 30 years old, so it's probably been weathered a little bit, worn out. It's just a few ticks lower in tone. Okay. So, you know, their voices are a little bit deeper. (laughs) The music's just a little bit slower. It's nothing like where... It's like it's not like it's just a little bit. So, like three percent. It took me a minute. I'm like, wait, what the fuck? Something's not right here. But you know what I did? I ended up listening to all of it anyways, just because you know this is maybe this is this would be a cool take on it. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's my life, Trent. So did Love and Affection or After the Rain or Tracy's song or any of that sound? exceptionally better when it was slowed down a few percent <laughs> i mean no no i mean but they're it was great songs it, regardless yeah they're great songs regardless you're you're exactly <laughs> right but i still wanted to hear the the legitimate version oh yeah so anyways there you go i don't know why i brought that up but i don't know there <laughs> hey, you go it's cool random info right what what's your favorite song off that album was it more than ever absolutely because that's mine hands down hand, oh hand i was about to say hands down yeah it wins hands down to play it in a little armored saint action there, right, right. Yeah. But no, yeah, it's that is definitely the best song for me. Yeah. So yeah, let's uh, jump into this rather than ramble on. Let's get into hear what Matthew Nelson has to say. guys did your live stream the other day like how was that how was that whole process of playing to playing to an audience but not playing to an audience it's surreal though all that just bizarre you know uh gunner and i you know we made our living for three decades touring and never stopped in one way or another so for me not to have a live audience and i'm not saying that because obviously people are live and living and you know sending questions and all that kind of stuff but not having the feedback is bizarre because that's the it's kind of like what I always used to joke and say separates a musician from an actor, you know, and um, I miss it a lot. I miss either looking out on an audience and feeling an energy and, you know, for me to be able to navigate uh, a crowd with songs that I choose to sing or, you know, you can't really see that reaction. And it's a skill that I've developed for a lot of years and I, I miss doing that. But you know, here's the po- the plus side of it is we can reach more people with a broadcast like that than, you know, 10 concerts or more. You know, it depends on how many people are viewing. But uh, I always said that the hardest thing with touring and playing weekend warrior shows is that you have to get there, you know. Did it feel kind of like a sound check or a rehearsal? Not really. I mean, you know, Gunnar and I have been doing this a long time, so we've done we've done a couple of things like this. I remember we did um, 
uh, we did some things for like the armed forces services network and stuff like that. And you're, you're in a sound studio and yeah, you know, they're, they've got a camera on you and you're doing a, a show or talking to people or whatever. So, you know, it's not that far off of it. I'm just saying that there is a, a huge difference being an entertainer that's not playing in front of, you know, thousands of people or hundreds of people at a time that are in front of you. Yeah. Um, you know, it's that, it's, look, it's the thing that we're all kind of suffering through, which is a lack of human contact yeah. and, you know, social distancing my ass, you know, it's just kind of like, uh, you know, the, the music is about communion to me. Music is the greatest device that we have of connecting with people worldwide. It, it transcends language, you know? So f- for, for me, live music is as good as it gets. And, and that means getting people in a big room together that are there to experience something and then communicating the musicians, having a nice conversation on stage musically that translates to that person that's in front to receive that. And then they give back. And, um, you know, I'm saying that we're all learning how to deal with it. I don't really think it's going to like, I've got two shows next month. Uh, it's my first shows in almost a year. And supposedly they're going to play and we do a Christmas show. That's pretty cool. And, and normally I'd be out on the road right now doing 30 of them, but we have two of them that are being allowed to play this year. And I will have more information for you when I get back as to what it's like in this world. You know, we've had a lot of stuff that has moved over a year, you know, maybe a third of it has canceled, but the others have just rescheduled for a year from now. It's almost like the dumpster fire of 2020 is just a do over year, yeah. but I really will have more information after I do these shows in December and see how that goes off. You know, I mean, we've had people call us up and say, well, you know, uh, local ordinances, uh, we can only have a venue at 20% capacity. And it's like, well, okay, so you're going to have a huge place with what looks like the local crew in there, you know, that which is basically what's going to feel like. So, if you put it that way, and and by comparison, in this where we are right now as we sit, I can reach thirty thousand people uh, by not leaving our studio. That's probably a more efficient, more effective way of communicating and stuff like that. It just I'm going to tell you, it's just not as much fun. Yeah, <laughs> you know, well, it's not as much fun. Well, I saw you guys took requests from the fans for that show. Was there any deep cuts requests that kind of caught you guys off guard or anything? Not really. I mean, even if we do deep cut requests, I mean, we didn't really get anything that, that, you know, challenged me. I'll be honest with you. I get, I get that a lot on cameo. You know, I do these little cameo things and it's this little program where people can, you know, hook up, you know, hook into a a celebrity and get a request or a hi, how you doing or whatever. I, I always lately have been kind of going over the top with them. You know, if it's not just a straight up happy birthday to somebody, whatever, I always have my guitar. I always sing a song. And lately I have fans that are, are not only going deep cuts of mine and I'm talking stuff that I haven't done since I recorded it initially or wrote it, but I'm talking about musicians and artists, you know, like, Hey, can you play this obscure Todd Rundgren song? And I'm doing it, you know? So it's kind of cool to keep me on my toes. You know, I kind of like it. Gunner doesn't do that. He's like, ah, not, I'm not a dancing bear. I'm not a monkey. <laughs> but for me, I look at it as like, eh, you know, it gave me a chance to kind of go into the Todd Rundgren catalog. And we're connected because I found out after the fact that he actually wanted to produce our After the Rain album. Nobody ever told me, unfortunately, until two years ago that, oh, that wow. he was on as a, you know, so that would have been awesome had I known, you know. But uh, so, you know. I, I look at it as like, eh, it's, 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 uh, it's a challenge. You know, I'm not, I'm not the dancing bear. It's just somebody challenges me to go and play, you know, an obscure Leo Sayer song. Okay. I'll put my own thing into it and do it. Or, you know, some metal something, you know, that's fine. I mean, I, I, I have all the stuff that I do with Gunner. We're working on a new project. We've got a whole Nelson 30-year anniversary thing that was just kind of put off, but we're working together with Universal to put that together. And then I've got a uh, modern hard rock band called Red 37 that's finally coming out that we, you know, is a completely different type of thing and super heavy. But um, I'm just, musically speaking, I'm pretty satisfied because I can do a whole bunch of, and, you know, the nostalgia thing I do for my dad. You know, it's just, I think part of being a musician is just be well-versed 
be open for a challenge. And there have been times when somebody's requested something of me, whether it be on a live stream or on Cameo, and I just say, yeah, just I'm just not feeling that today. You know, I can't say no. You're allowed. You know, but it's rare. You know, I, I'm usually up for the challenge. If I always ask myself the question, well, if this doesn't make me comfortable to play this song, why is that? And let me take a look at that. And then at the end of that, if I go, well, this is the reason, and it's a good reason, I can say no. But you know, for the most time, for the most time, I'm kind of I'm happy with it. And just learning how to deal with the the absence of human beings in front of me. And uh, hopefully, we'll get back to some sense of normalcy, you know, relatively soon. Right. Was that, I think you said Red 37, that project, is that you and Gunner or just you yeah. and some other? No, it's just me. It's a, it's me, uh, JJ Ferris, who was in a band a long time ago called the Tories. And before that Slam and Gladys, and then, uh, Brian Burwell, who was in uh, the band Neve. And, um, what else was that band he was in? Uh, oh gosh. Uh, It'll come to me. Um, he was actually in a, uh, a candle box. So uh, we had a, a thing that we, we did for a while, took a little break from it. And now we're finally releasing it called Red 37 and uh, hard rock trio. I play bass, sing, sing backup and, and co-lead vocals. JJ sings lead and guitar and Brian is a drummer. And it's huge sounding three piece. And we recorded it actually at, at Sound City, you know, the studio that Dave Grohl made a movie about. Right. Uh, did the the entire album, 12 songs, actually 14 songs in five days mixed and just had the single mixed by Chris Lord Algae, who's like my favorite mixer of all time and uh, putting it out. And, you know, people, have been, it's like been one of like a unicorn band for anybody that's known Gunner and myself. You know, when are you going to put Red 37 out? So we just decided, you know, screw it. Let's put it out. And that's what we're doing. Cool. Well, you guys are been promoting the 30 year anniversary of after the rain and i know it's been well documented how hard of a process it was for you guys to get the green light to make the album in the first place but once that happened yep what are your favorite memories of actually recording the album Ooh, good question because you had to stipulate recording the album <laughs> um honestly i i think my favorite my favorite thing was the, the initial you know going into Cherokee with the right team and a great studio with a lot of history you know my dad recorded there what you know years before we got there and by the time we got there so many amazing bands had recorded there just a legendary room in LA and setting up the guys and and you know tracking the basic tracks I think that was probably that was that was a red letter day was you know, we knew it was for real and it was coming together. And it's like anything when you're cutting basics, you know, you've got the take, you know, everybody's looking at each other going, that was it or it wasn't. Let's do it again. You know, I love that kind of recording. And, and probably the second thing was uh, rescuing our song Love and Affection, which became a number one song from the cutting floor after uh, the first, you know, uh, the first attempt with Mark Tanner and David Thoner failed we recommended a guy we had worked with uh, that was kind of, I think, underestimated at the time, a guy named David Holman. He had worked a lot with Olivia Newton-John and uh, as an engineer, but we had worked with him doing a song for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure for that soundtrack. We did a song called Two Heads Are Better Than One with the Wheel Zappa, and David had a real sensibility for pushing the envelope, even with rock music, kind of as an engineer we just loved what he did and we knew when we cut it that it just wasn't good enough but we knew the song was a winner we just knew it had something special and we we didn't say you know everybody said i'll oh, just leave it on the cutting room floor you've got enough to songs like no no no, no. We, we know what we got this is a song that got us our record deal i mean there's something there that's special with it and took it to david's studio up uh lookout in um right off of laurel canyon you know, uh, which was kind of just always every time I drove past there on my way home, it always felt like I was passing by, you know, I could see Jim Morrison's house and stuff like that. It was weird. But he had this little studio that was a state of the art studio up about 150 stairs. So we had to carry all our gear up there. And it was just Gunner and myself. Wow. What was the, the tracks that were on the uh, the cutting room floor, basically, that that we were going to throw away. And um, we basically discarded. Oh, a solid 80% of what we had recorded with the band at Cherokee and Gunner 
Gunner and I basically redid most of the song and David mixed it. And uh, we, we just knew it was special. And actually a song called Bits and Pieces was supposed to be our first single on that album. And when we finished Love and Affection, it kind of it kind of steered the ship in a completely different direction, you know, with that song. And then After the Rain and then More Than Ever and Only Time Will Tell. I mean, it was a, a pretty clear direction that we needed to go when we finished Love and Affection. And, and so for me, as far as it, you know, and, and by the way, David Holman went on to uh, to produce Just a Girl for No Doubt. You know, out of nowhere, this band from Orange County comes out and blows up huge. And then he then he produced Bush and all of these bands. He just became this huge producer. So it was kind of like we were all kind of underestimated at the same time and, and hit gold together. So that was pretty fun. Well, you mentioned two heads are better than one. And I, I always loved that song. And I think like a lot of people, I didn't realize for quite a while that it was you guys since the, the vocalist <laughs> was different and the name obviously was different. We got shafted on that one too, which right. is weird because um, I remember John Kalodner, our guy with Geffen. You know, we were we were still making our record, and Kalodner didn't want us to put our own name on it, so he said, "Just come up with anything." And say, like, "Okay, fine, whatever." Power Tool, <laughs> and uh, they didn't tell us that they were going to substitute Gunner's vocal, which, by the way, is so much better than Peter Beckett's vocal. I mean, so much better, like a whole different level better. Yeah. And when we saw the, the uh, original cut, the original edit of the movie, the screener, when we were up at uh, – they had everybody go to Universal. They filled up a whole movie theater, and and uh, it was our vocals on it. And we were super-duper pumped. You know, It was like, man, this is great. But I don't know what happened politically You know, when you haven't sold any records or whatever and you've got a really powerhouse A&R guy that's saying, you know, I don't want the first thing people to hear is this and – and, and they did the old switcheroo on the vocal. And uh, to this day, when I see the movie, you know, I hear us playing on it and doing the whole thing. And then I hear Peter Beckett's vocal. It just feels, it's just wrong, you know? Yeah. But uh, people, people knew it was us doing it. But, it, you know, we actually have a, we have something coming out. We actually released it on our indie where you could actually hear the real version of the song with Gunner singing it. And uh, it's going to come out again on Universal next year. We're doing a definitive uh hits collection and that's definitely going to be on it okay cool yeah because i, I kind of wondered like was there ever any thought of including it on after the rain with gunner's vocals or was that not possible because of record label politics well it was both we, we actually the way that they had it was we we did it as a custom song for the film so when they i guess we had a manager at the time that knew the music supervisor that said hey you know we've got all these bands like uh extreme and this person this person or whatever do you have any clients that might want to do a song and so gunner and i wrote the song and weasel was there that day and so theoretically he was you know he wrote the song he definitely played some guitar on it and as a matter of fact, we did the demo on an on an eight track Fostex reel to reel at a producer named John Boylan's house. John produced us later on, but he uh, he worked with our dad and produced bands like um, well the first the first couple of Boston albums he produced those. Okay. And um, Quarter Flash and Little River Band and you know uh, Edie Brickell, like the producer's producer kind of guy. And he had a little tiny studio back when nobody had home studios. It was a eight track Fostex machine. Dweezil played his solo just on this little Randall combo and we mic'd it up and that was our demo. And when it came time to actually record the song for the film, you know, we were only about a mile away from Dweezil's house. And for some reason he just didn't feel like getting out of bed. He didn't <laughs> want to come over to the studio. So we, we went down to Boylan's, got the reel to reel machine, went up to David Holmes. This is way before pro tools or any of that stuff. And we, we actually put our fingers on the reel to fly in, Dweezil's solo from the demo. So that actually, his his take was a one-take thing. Um, hang on a second. Dude, I'm doing an interview, so I'll have to do it when I'm done, okay? Okay. okay. Yeah, just after I'm done, okay? Okay, thanks, buddy. Um, and you need shoes on. It's wet, so go get your shoes. Sorry, got a six-year-old. Um, <laughs> and uh, so that was kind of another neat thing, too, is um, Dweezil and Gunner and I, we've been friends forever, and He's he's really one of the great talents of I don't know if you've seen his show that he does for his dad, but he's kind of a freak yeah. show. You know, I always said this, you know, his brain is a supercomputer. You know, he he learned how to play kind of quickly. In six months he was a virtuoso. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. And um 
but I just remember how funny it is that I can say, yeah, Dweezil did a great job on that on that session, although he actually wasn't technically on the session. We just <laughs> flew his reel-to-reel performance of that one day we wrote together onto a song that wound up getting everywhere. But I mean, honestly, to this day, Gunner and I haven't we haven't made any money off of Two Heads Are Better Than One, you know, for whatever reason. I'm pretty sure I'd have to go see the. Uh, I, I think that the the soundtrack went gold, but I don't think we've ever gotten paid for it. So mm-hmm. we'll check into it. Unless you know, anybody that gets in this business to get rich is an idiot. So <laughs> right. we, uh, you know, we just uh, it was a really cool experience, and um, just heard from Dweezil actually last week. I got to call him. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, kind of moving into the. The mid '90s, when everything changed with grunge and alternative, I uh-huh. always kind of thought, since your guys' sound had a lot of pop elements to it, that it still would have been relevant on like pop and hit radio, you know, outside of rock mm-hmm. radio. Was that something you guys ever thought about, or do you think maybe the image or just being associated with '80s rock is kind of what prevented that from happening? Well, we didn't. We didn't guess. I mean, when when things changed. Gunner and I were effectively canceled. We were ended. And it was a political thing and it was a real decision. I mean, Nirvana broke on our label, which was DGC. And we went from being kind of the flagship artists of that little offshoot. You know, they they tried to break a band called Little Caesar, which didn't happen. And Gunner and I happened primarily because of kids calling into Dial MTV, this call-in show, and requesting our videos. And it kind of took on this big groundswell, much to the, the label chagrin. We never even got a penny of tour support, even though we went on the road for 13 months. We financed our own tours. We really never got the support, but it just kind of happened in spite of that. So when Nirvana happened on our label, in, in hindsight, looking back on it, and I'm not a victim, I'm just saying it was political. You know, they were looking for any excuse to cut and run, which they did. And overnight, the priority was... You know, it wasn't Whitesnake and Nelson and Cher and, you know, all those those bands and uh, Aerosmith. You know, the priority really was the Seattle thing. And they they fired a whole bunch of people at the label, hired 20 somethings from Sub Pop. And, you know, it was a completely different. It was a paradigm shift like we've never seen before. And Geffen put us on ice for a few years. We actually recorded a second album that scared them called Imaginator. And they wouldn't release it. They refused to. They said, this isn't this isn't the Nelson that we know. And it was like, no, it was a concept record about the media and the machine that it is. And it's, you know, a, a device to control people. And here we are 30 years later. And again, we were right because we lived it. It's actually really accelerated. Now it's super scary. But um, they didn't want to put it out. And uh, we had sold too many records to, to let go from our contract. Uh, so they basically said, okay, you can go back in with, you know, with a shoestring budget like ADATS and stuff like that and finish a record. And, and we wound up coming up with something called Because They Can, which was a completely different shift from the Imaginator record. It was very acoustic and it was, uh, almost folky and it was actually a really good record. John Boylan produced it. I'm very proud of a lot of, a lot of our fans say it's their favorite album. But when I'm saying that we didn't, we didn't get like like any push at all we actually had the head of the label a guy named robert smith walk up to me and i remember this it was a week before our album was released the the uh, because it can album and uh, beyond the fact that in the parking lot when i was coming up tony berg another a and r guy from that kind of hipster thing literally said to me he looked at me he went what you're still here this is one of the a and r guys at the label like uh what do you mean like nothing he started chuckling he went the other way and i went inside and robert smith not from the cure, the guy from the label said, "Hey, uh, good, good thing I'm seeing you. I hear your record's coming out next week. You know, we just had a meeting about it, and I just wanted to let you know, so you're not surprised that I'm going to do everything I possibly can to kill your record. I'm going to make sure it gets no support. You're not going to get any radio support. There's going to be no money put into it. It's not going to happen. I just wanted you to not be surprised." Wow. And I sat there and I said, "You understand that, like, I'm a human being, and I've, I've got like a family and." You know, people count on me to like pay for their families, and you're, this is a joke, right? He's like, no. He thought he was doing me a favor, and I'm sitting there looking at this evil prick, going, "Wow." So that's what you get for making somebody thirty million dollars, you know, when they're done with you, you know. So 
that was the reality of the music business. And I already knew it, you know, but I'm just saying that when Gunnar and I didn't have to guess, it wasn't like, you know, it was, it was not made to be a mystery to us that when they were done with us, even at the label, you know, David Geffen saying wonderful gems, like Nelson's over, they're just costing me money. And we still chose to hang a second. I am working right now. I'm doing an interview. I love you. Don't be rude. I will come out. I will. Play. I can't wait to play Frisbee, but I got to finish this interview. Okay. It's the only job I got to do today. And then I'm all yours. <laughs> Give me 10 minutes. Okay. Yeah. Go play with some Hot Wheels. I love you. I'll be done in a second. By the way, hair looks great. <laughs> Hi. Sorry. <laughs> um, cool. I remember being six too. So yeah. uh, anyways, the uh, that's, that's basically, we, we didn't have to guess about it. And as far as the radio embracing us, we... You know, honestly, there was a, a song, it, it, it broke the top 40, called uh, You Got Me All Shook Up. It was very kind of poppy and acoustic, and, and it was a really good song. And when I'm saying that when you're on the end of doing radio promotion where you've been told by the label that they are not fighting for you, you know, um, it's kind of weird when you go from a zero to a complete hero, like the top of the mountain, number one song, arena tour sold out. And then, then it's almost like they take great pleasure in tearing you down to a point that, you know, you find yourself in, uh, in Seattle at the height of the grunge thing with the label saying, look, the number one station in Seattle says they're going to add you to the playlist, which is a big thing for your points on Billboard and all that kind of stuff. And other, since it was Seattle and Seattle was hot and everybody's looking at it and they'll add you to their playlist too and you'll have success with your single and and all that stuff. But two things, you have to go and be on their morning show in the, in the morning and they're pretty rough on people and they really, basically they want to roast you guys. I'm like, okay, well we can handle it. We, you know, we're, you're not total pusses. You know, we can, we, we grew up in this, not a big deal. And they said, and the second thing is, you know, they do a big parade and, uh, they're going to put you on their parade float for the, uh, for the station. And I'm thinking, okay, that's kind of lame, but all right, whatever it takes to get the ad. Right. So Gunnar and I go there we, uh, we have these guys that are just openly hostile, absolutely hostile. It's basically like Democrats and Republicans right now. I mean, it's, yeah. it was, they were hostile to us. And by the end of this thing, I can't say that they were eating out of our hand, but I'm saying that they had mellowed out and realized, look, we're just guys and we love what we do and we're entertainers and, you know, enough with the attitude. You know, I know that we might symbolize something to you that was a bygone era and we're like the poster children for the last of the confidence rock. But even those guys wouldn't let us in the club. We were far more, you know, folky and pop than we were metal. OK, yeah. so we were like we've always been, you know, guys without a, a country, really. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, then they, they, they we ended the interview and, yes, they added our song. <laughs> and uh, we went to where the parade float was. And I'm not making this up. No shit. It was a parade float with 30 sets of twins on it. Wow. Okay. And there were stanchions up on the top where we were to be strapped in in front of, of guitars that were mounted. And perform as we drove through the streets of Seattle at the height of grunge with 30 sets of twins. And we actually had the entire town, the entire city of Seattle flipping us the bird for a half an hour and wow. gunners were leaning into me going well this is going to be a great chapter in the book <laughs> and and i just went this right here just i said soak this in brother this is the biggest low light they could this is the biggest f you you could possibly get not only from from seattle but from the label <laughs> oh oh yeah no as i was saying sorry i don't know why the internet um i said that and we made it through this excruciatingly horrible situation and uh got back to the hotel to be told that yeah they added our song for one day and then they took it off the playlist wow so technically they just basically got us to there to humiliate us but it was really weird because you know a year and a half earlier we were playing you know the biggest venues selling them out we're selling 38 dollars you know and merchandise per head you know and uh it was weird because it was um it was not something that was really organic. I, I mean, when MTV goes from playing kind of guitar music and confidence rock and then is, is given a mandate by the upper guys that said, hey, this stuff is too expensive now. So we've got uh, we're just going to be playing two things. It's either grunge music or hip hop. That's it. We've shifted. 
okay? And unfortunately, we even though those those fine folks with uh, long hair really wouldn't let us in their club either, you know, we came to represent kind of that that musical era. So I agree with you that our songs lean a little bit more pop, and that comes from the fact that Gunner and I cut our teeth in clubs in Los Angeles in the late 70s as a as a new wave band, as a power pop and new wave act. Uh, there was, you know, L.A. was great because, you know, we were really into punk music and the new wave thing or whatever, but we kind of skewed more new wave and pop with our music. And um, we played clubs we were too young to get into, you know, we're 12, 13 years old. And um, what a great time. I mean, all the bands with the the in front of them, like the knack, the motels, all that kind of stuff was happening. And, um, you know, Fear and X and Black Flag had just happened. So that was kind of when we were really cutting our our teeth in the clubs. And it was pretty cool that um, a couple of, you know, a couple of years ago, I found myself in Washington, D.C., visiting a friend of mine that's in the Foo Fighters. And uh, Rami Jaffe is a keyboard player. And... Uh, he took us up to what I thought was going to be like an after show, but it was actually uh, the Foo Fighters dressing room. And it was just us and the Foo Fighters. And they couldn't have been nicer. You know, and this is, again, one of the guys who was in Nirvana that, you know, Cobain used to make jokes about, yeah, we burn effigies of Nelson before every show and that kind of stuff. And, right. and he couldn't have been nicer to me. You know, he was super nice. The whole band was great. And Pat Smear was kind of had this weird look on his face, like a sneery smile. And he said, hi, I'm Pat Smear. I said, I don't know who you are, Pat. And he said, I was in a band called The Germs. And I said, yeah, we know Pat. (laughs) And he goes, well, what you don't know is your band, The Strange Agents. I mean, like I couldn't believe he knew my band from the L.A. days, like in the late 70s. And he said, your band, The Strange Agents, was playing in Chinatown in Los Angeles at Madame Wong's Chinatown. And that was the new wave club. And right across the alley was the Hong Kong Cafe where all the punkers played. And the germs were playing the same night as you. And we all wanted to go and see your show so bad. And he said, and we couldn't do it because it wasn't cool for punkers to like go to a, a new way. It's like, <laughs> dude, the fact that Pat Smear knows who my band was from 1979, I'm like, that's just the best. You just made my day, you know? <laughs> but it was really kind of cool that, you know, it all comes around. And, you know, there's the business of music and then there's being a musician. And an entertainer and all that comes with it. And to me, I've met and communicated with more amazing people that I admire and that I grew up with listening to or that I fantasized about playing shows with. Or, you know, there's been so much that's happened in my life because of of uh, of music that I can't say, even though we went through you know, the strawberry festival on a parade float with 30 sets of twins, it was all worth it. If that was my penance, I, you know, okay, sign me up, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, Gunner and I came home off of that whole run with the After the Rain era, quite literally millions of dollars in debt. It took us 30 years to pay it off. Wow. And it was still worth it. If it came up, you know, if you said, hey, you're going to basically, you're going to lose all your friends, you're going to go on and get married and move forward and you're going to, you know, spend decades paying off this. You're going to be saddled with kind of a a little, you know, the kind of your family karma of, you know, people not really uh, understanding you and trying to write you off as this and that. And the next thing, you know, which is really the family karma, I think. But you're going to make a lot of people happy. You're going to have number one records. You're going to play to thousands of people. And the people that matter are going to really love it. But it's going to hurt. And I would say, where do I sign? Yeah. <laughs> I'm in. You know, sign me up. Yep. Well, I got a quick story for you from the After the Rain era. Sure. Whenever I was 13 in 1990, when that came out, and my mom and my friend's mom went to a church seminar that was basically Uh talking about how anything related to rock music is glorifying Satan and everything evil. Okay. So my mom came home from that and took the majority, almost all of my CDs and cassettes. Oh, wow. She left like four or five. And the only okay. ones that I specifically remember were Born in the USA and After the Rain that she allowed me to keep. <laughs> wow. Well, that's that's pretty awesome. Yeah. That's I'm, pretty awesome. First of all, sorry that your mom your mom did that, you know, but, um, you know, it's a, you, people do weird things, you know, and and all I can say is I'm glad that we 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 made it through the filter for whatever reason. Right. You know, I'm, I'm glad that you, you had that record. Hey, did you hear the uh, the remastered version of it? I did. uh 
got to get the analog masters and re-EQ everything uh, kind of the way that we heard it at, in the Cherokee days. It sounds amazing. We did for a 180 gram vinyl release a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. but uh, it it just it, well let's just say this the stuff on uh, on iTunes has been switched out. If it says remastered, you can hear it, and what a difference! It's like all that bottom end is back. Uh, you know, obviously it's louder because it's you know 30 years later, but it just sounds so much. I'm just so pleased with it. It sounds great. So if you get a chance to go on, and if it says remastered after it, that's the one to look at. Okay, yeah, definitely check that out. Side note, she actually gave me all my stuff back like a few months later. She didn't actually pull oh, it out like she said she did. Bad. So. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah. That's okay. But, yeah, you know, I mean, you got to get, you know, it's, especially with music. You know, I'm a parent too. And, you know, now it's kind of a, it's a different thing. Before then, it was like what PMRC and all that kind of stuff. And now you've got kids on the internet being fed all kinds of stuff with algorithms determining what they're, you know, what they feel. It's yeah. really scary for being a parent now. I mean, it is for me. And it's only started to heat up. So I don't think that's going to change. Just a different era. It's kind of like when our, our dad released music in the 50s. It was the same thing. Yeah, he was on the Ozzy and Harriet show. But he got more hate mail sent to our grandparents. You know, it's the devil's music. How can you do this? All that kind of stuff. And wow. and they just kind of knew that that uh, they were not truly understanding. I think they that was the only time they ever addressed the subject on the show ever that was kind of like a, a thing because, you know, you've kind of smuggled rock and roll into American television sets at a time that it was a, you know, race music or, you know, kind of a, you know, subvertive art form in the eyes of parents and stuff. And my grandmother got the, you know, dad comes down the stairs and he says, hey, mom, what do you think about rock and roll? And she said, well, I've been hearing it for a while, so I'm pretty well brainwashed at this point and made a little joke about it. And she said, I just think it's the you know, the modern day expression of a teenager's enthusiasm, you know, I'm not going to knock it. And, and so then it ended, you know, all of that. Well, it's like, kind of like, well, Bozzy and Harriet, I guess are okay with it. I, I might not be truly happy, but they must know something about this. And they had a lot of influence. So it really helped. So it's kind of interesting that you went through what you went through. And at the end of that, your mom lets you keep our music, you yeah. know, I mean, it's almost like our pop had kind of like spiritually blazed that trail already. So, um, you know, and it's, you know, it's always going to be there, man. It, you know, that whole thing, it's always going to be there. It's usually, you know, people tend to knock what they don't truly understand. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm not saying that I've lived my life perfectly or as an angel, but, you know, our music most certainly has never been satanic. It's been the opposite. Right. You know? Well, yeah, kind of on that same note, I, told my mom a couple of days ago that I was doing this interview and she said that she saw Ricky live about a week before he passed away. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. At the Oklahoma state fair. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. He was, um, he was a really good guy. He was a beautiful guy, but he was a really good guy. He always played his shows no matter what and how tired he was. He always, he always cared, you know, I never saw him phone it in. And, um, you know, we can't really imagine it too much because Gunnar and I had a, I'm just saying as a, you know, perception thing, you know, we were in the media's eye for, you know, a solid two years of overexposure. You know, he grew up literally on a television show from the time he was eight and left when he was 22. And people saw him grow up in front of him and then start playing music and become, you know, a rock star and all that that stuff. And then kind of get married and all. I mean, basically, when they lost my dad, those that generation felt like they lost a family member. It was a whole different thing, you know. Yeah. I still have people come up to our, you know, with I used to before this COVID stuff and come up an autograph line, and start talking about our dad and start crying. You know, it's like, oh, it just it was like, I remember where I was when when Kennedy got shot, when Elvis died and when your dad died. Those are like my three biggies, wow. you know, so crazy, you know, it's yeah. um, but, you know, I, you know, tell your mom I said hello and, you know, tell her to rest assured. My pop was just a genuine. I never saw him have a celebrity moment. He was always kind and, you know. I mean, I was there when they announced the the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame first year inductees, you mm -hmm. know, and I I watched him get passed over. And here's a guy that sold half a billion singles in his career. Wow. Okay. Half a billion. And That's uh, crazy. Yeah. aside from Elvis, the only rocker to have a number one album in the 50s. And, you know, outside of America, ironically, like, you know, all the, the, the Beatles, the Stones, they all, you know, Queen, everybody outside of America cited him as being a main, uh, like a major influence in them. 
And in the States, the blessing and the curse of a TV show is, one, people don't think that it's real. You know, it's made for TV kind of thing. The second thing, though, was that nobody knew that uh, the bane of the Elvis Presley estate's existence was our dad was friends with Elvis, you know, but realistically speaking, he was always his biggest competitor. He's the only guy that even came quite close to a run for his money. Now, Elvis will always be the king, but they always say that Ricky Nelson was the crown prince of rock and roll. Right. And when they put up the uh, – when they started talking about doing the – the rock hall, they hadn't built the building yet, but we found out that, uh, yeah, there were some people that said, well, you know, you can induct Ricky Nelson the first year, but if you do, you're not going to get any Elvis stuff. It was that, it was that wow. serious. It was that political. And so I was there when they announced the names and I remember seeing my dad, they got to the end of it and they didn't announce his name and he should have been first year. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, he was, and I remember him looking at me, kind of looked down, smiled a little bit, went, Hey, how about some ice cream? And I was like, pop. And he goes, Matt, you're going to learn this. Life is nothing more than a series of comebacks. Wow. Okay. Just got to, you know, let's move on. And I realized what he was saying to me was not only never quit, but it was, man, he had a whole lifetime of people just, uh, you know, dismissing him. And then, of course, he gets a posthumous Grammy for a spoken word thing. He was at, at uh, Sun, Sun Records, you know, the recording studio. And somebody had a cassette rolling, and and it's really cool. I got it upstairs. I mean, the names on this Grammy are, you know, it's Ricky Nelson, Johnny Cash, Roy Orbison. Um, uh, uh, oh gosh, um, who did Blue Suede Shoes? Not not Elvis, but uh, who wrote it? Uh, uh, Carl, Carl Perkins. Perkins. Yeah, Carl Perkins and um, Sam Phillips, and they're all on this, you know, on this one Grammy. All these names. I mean, just just unbelievable. You know what I've what I got upstairs, and that's really cool and stuff. But you know. Pop was dead, and it would have been really cool had they given him that Grammy when he could go up on stage and take a bow. But I realized that our grandfather, Ozzy, wrote, produced, edited, directed, starred in all 435 episodes of the Ozzy and Harriet show and was never even nominated for a single Emmy because yeah. he wouldn't play the industry game. And so when I really look back on, on uh, you know, and Oz had number one records with a big band in the, in the 30s. And I, I look back on the family, you know, and we've always made music or entertained real people, you know, what people have always called, you know, the flyover states, you know, the coastals always dismiss real America. And for some reason, we seem to have a real, a real thing with, with just normal people, you know, not elites, which is ironic because it's like, you know, there's like a Hollywood legacy, but Nobody ever played the insider game. Nobody would ever do that, you know, in a very subtle way. We just did what we did and made people happy, but were largely dismissed or misunderstood. So I actually kind of wear that badge proudly looking back. I and mean, Gunnar and I aren't done. We've got another project that's coming out next year called Firstborn Sons, which is going to really, I think, surprise a lot of people. You know, it's, um, you know, the tagline of it is, you know, great American country rock. And it's, yeah, we've been playing country music for a while, but you know, it's kind of like, you know, modern country meets the Almond Brothers meets, uh, you know, it's got a little bit of Stones and Beatles in it. It's really cool. Great music and really excited about it. So we're not done yet, but I also don't harbor any illusions about being, you know, universally embraced by whatever industry there is. It's going to deliver this. It's going to be it's going to be us and a bunch of people that like what we do. If it if it works great and it's going to be up to them. And if not. You know, I don't go to bed at night going, man, why haven't I been nominated for a Grammy? You know, it's kind of family karma. And I'm okay with it. <laughs> yeah. What what I like more than anything is people that either come see us play or, you know, like when I do, you know, sessions for people or things like that. You know, I did – I played uh, session bass on the American Music Awards for 13 years and became really good friends with guys like Phil X, who's – you know, he was a great guitar player. But now he's in Bon Jovi. He's right. been there for, I think, eight years. And just a freak show, good guitar player. And, you know, I think when you can impress players by doing what you do, just be subtle, show up, you know, kick some ass, you know, or singing on funny things like, you know, I did the first two Steel Panther albums, the background vocals on that oh, with wow. the guys. I didn't know that. And Yeah. And it's uh, it's cool because I, I mean, if you listen to the song Fat Girls, listen to the chorus and go, oh, there he is, <laughs> you know. So, uh, but they're really great guys and fantastic musicians with a great concept, but you know, to be able to to do that kind of stuff, I I'm I get get off more on that. I want to show up and have people go, holy shit, than 
you know, sit around in this day and age and, you know, wave my flag going, look at me, look at me, aren't I great? It's like, eh, that's not for me to, you know, to do this. It's about music and, and just, um, you know, trying to get across what you have to say. And, and as I said, when we started this whole thing, having different projects that I can do, you know, most of them with my brother, some without where, you know, I'm having a great time communicating and, you know, the biggest challenge I think of my career after doing this all this time is how do you, how do you pivot in the era of, you know, uh, social media and lockdowns and, population manipulation and all, I mean, you know, how, how are we all going to come out of this, you know, and, and hopefully, uh, music will wind up being the solution and not the problem. And, uh, you know, Gunnar and I can have something to do with being the soundtrack to kind of like a, a, a rebirth of, of hope, because I think that's what we're, we're having a crisis of it right now. You know, it happens when you lock people up for a year. Yeah, exactly. You know, well, Final question for you, kind of on that sure. note, outside of all the projects you guys have coming out, like working on those, how have you spent your personal time during this pandemic? Being a dad. Okay. Being being a dad. Um, got a little boy who just turned six. Uh, his name is Ozzy, and Ozzy plays drums and guitar, and he sings, and he writes songs, and he plays Frisbee and loves Hot Wheels, and he is awesome. We're going to play Frisbee in a second, buddy. He's right here just watching me. And, um, you know, and being a husband, you know, because one thing you give up when you're you're touring a lot to, to take care of your family and stuff like that is you give up a lot of time with your, your wife and with your with your little boy and and stuff. So I think the greatest treasure out of this whole thing is, you know, happened one day when my my kid came and grabbed me by the leg and he looked up at me and said, Pop, I like that you're not playing shows right now because you can spend more time with me. I was like, oh, man, that's it. Yeah. You got it. Because I realized, too, I'm doing what my dad did in the 60s and 70s and stuff like that. And he was gone a lot. He was gone more than I am. But, I mean, he was gone a lot. And I always say that I would give anything for five more minutes with him, you know. So I understand now that here I am. You know, I look at this as that's the best part of this opportunity is to be with my little boy and with my wife who, you know, you can grow apart from if you spend a lot of time away from you know so uh and it's you know every day has its challenges and stuff like that but you know when you you know what it's given me is really an opportunity to to kind of discover a little more about who i am and and more importantly you know cultivate my relationship with my with my wife and my kid that's that's my that's really my priority yeah Yeah, you know i guess everybody can look back and they can go you can get on that treadmill for a long time which i i'll be honest with you i was and when you, you have an opportunity, you're forced into an opportunity of taking a look at the why you do what you do. You know, really pay attention to like, do you really want to do this? Because there's a difference between having to do something and wanting to do it. Why do you do it? Is it making a difference? Could you be happier if you pivot and do something else or augment? You know, all the stuff that I think that, that makes you a better person as you grow. And I think it's forced a lot of people to make, make decisions uh, in their personal lives that are going to reflect in what they do with their work. I know mine is, you know, like for instance, putting out red 37, it was just sitting there and, you know, it's one of the the best things I've ever done in my life. I'm so happy with it. And for a lot of reasons. And the fact that it's going to be coming out on a tiny little independent called jib machine, the fact it's going to just get out there is, is, you know, to me, all that is, is just, you know, finishing what I started is really important. I think, you know, I started this family and, you know, I want to, I want to complete my task. I want to, I want to finish my mission without being absent. So I think as we, we go forward and with whatever's going to happen after this, this, uh, really screwed up era, you know, hopefully, you know, what I do musically is, is going to make a, a positive difference for people and make them happy. And, and more importantly for me, you know, I'll, I'll kind of have a different, I've always had a, a mission and a sense of purpose, but there's going to be, uh, you know, kind of more uh, a different thing fueling it now, you know, knowing I always knew that, that time is precious. People are precious. We have no idea how much time we've got. But, you know, for the first time, I'm going to be doing shows saying, well, I don't know how many of these I have left, right. you know. So, uh, you know, and Gunnar and I both had COVID, you know, so we're not we're not we don't live in fear. It's not about it that we're, we're the opposite. You know, I'm one of those guys. It's like this is a this is ridiculous. You know, I kind of feel maybe it's the old punk rocker in me of feeling, you know, manipulated or 
our album Imaginator that talked about the media, you know, manipulating people to do anything that they want. And we're probably going to release that record again this coming up year just because of what the statement was. And it was prophetic. It was 30 years in advance of what's going on now. So I don't know. You know, for me, I think that, uh, you know, I talked to my my wife who's looking at me right now. You know, I talked to my wife a lot about the whys you do things. I mean, as long as at this point, if I've got my family and, and they're happy and healthy, I'm good. You know what I mean? Everything yeah. else is gravy. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you taking the time with me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. A pleasure too. And uh, say hi to your mother for me, okay? And Will do. Tell her thank you for letting you keep my record. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. There you go. Matthew Nelson of Nelson. A huge thank you to Melissa from Moxie Publicity for her help with that one. And of course, a massive thank you to Matthew Nelson for calling in and talking about man, all kinds of stuff. Nelson... Ricky Nelson, of course, and what he's, what the band has coming up here in the future. And hey, I even threw in some talk there about my mother, which I think that's the first time I might have talked to someone <laughs> about my mom on an interview. But hey, it fit in. It worked. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a, a fun thing. And then actually I posted about it after the interview and got a lot of comments from other people with similar stories, you know, from other artists and that kind of thing. So... We've all got those stories from being a kid and being uh, censored, maybe, at some point, somehow, from our parents, whether it be music or movies or whatever. Right. <laughs> Massive thank you there to Matthew Nelson. Very cool. We didn't mention beforehand. That's a, another thing I think I had down to like speak to him about, but then it went kind of long, so I just saved it for the future. But that time we saw him at Rocklahoma. Sure, you don't want to be like, oh, you remember that time we played Rocklahoma? But I'm like, you remember that time because it was like 107 yeah. degrees. Yeah. Because it was like <clears throat> early afternoon in July and it was just insane. But it was one of those There's ones no where, shade for like the audience. Yeah. But it was worth dealing with the heat because they were excellent. Yeah, they were they were great. And you know how you, you know it was too hot because uh, we weren't drinking alcohol. <laughs> Our cups, we like took, we took into that tent and got water. Right. That's how bad it was. Yeah. Absolutely. But that's more stories for another day. Right. But in the meantime, if you're here because you like Nelson and you like that era of rock and roll, well, guess what? We've got some other episodes for you to check out. Just earlier this week, Reb Beach from Winger and Whitesnake was our guest on episode 305. And then going back in time, we've had on members of Great White... Tesla, Dockin, Warrant, Trickster, Firehouse, LA Guns, Bullet Boys, Kicks, Kicks and Kiss, Guns N' Roses, Def Leppard, Motley Crue. We can say that because we had the greatest singer of Motley Crue's history on this podcast just go. a couple weeks ago. John Karabi. That's right. And that's no lie, no exaggeration. That's exactly what he is. Yeah, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm serious. Yep, I'm a heart serious attack too. Right now. Okay. Just letting that be known. But yeah, all that great stuff and a ton more. We get super heavy. We also get, you know, country with Shooter Jennings, little bluesy with guys like Ian Moore. And we've got Austin Moe coming up. Speaking of coming up, we've got Fred Lecklerk from Creator and Dragon Force. We've got Wayne Lozenak from Hatebreed. Like I said, Austin Moe. We've got Eric the Trainer. We've got Eric Bass. And we might have another member of Tesla. We don't know for sure. By the time you hear this, you just never know. You never know. If not, I don't care that that's out there because we've had a member of Tesla on this podcast three other times. So right. check out Frank Hannon on both his episodes and the recent Eddie Van Halen tribute episode 292 has a ton of great people on it. Like Paige Hamilton from Helmet. Jump back through all that stuff. Ethanunderground.com. You can listen to everything there. You can find all our socials there. Find us on YouTube and subscribe. At the Thunder Underground. We had a video earlier this week talking about August Burns Red and their new single. We had recent videos about Hate Breed and Metallica and Alter Bridge, Napalm Death and Saul. We've got merch you can buy on our website. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that great stuff. So check it all out. I guess that covers it. Once again, huge thank you to Melissa from Moxie Publicity. Thank you to Matthew Nelson. 
DEB Concerts, Hell Hot Hot Sauce, Sunset Tattoo, and Med Farm. And until next time. This Sorry a- so long. It's just I'm, I'm blonde and I'm trying to navigate the wonders that are the internet these days. <laughs> just now getting there after, what, 20 years, 25 years of the internet being around? <laughs> yeah, just trying to do a one-man boycott of Facebook and uh, Instagram and, and Twitter. And it uh, looks like I was right. So there you go. <laughs> right? Thunder Underground, y'all.